Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Alan Berman, Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council, join us to discuss the need to defeat not just jihadis, but Islamist ideas. Mr. Berman will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Elan Berman. Thanks, Stacey. Uh, th this is great. Uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be back. Uh, thank you so much to the Middle East Forum uh, for hosting me, uh, and in particular, uh, for allowing me to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Um, so here's the 30-second shameless plug. Uh, the uh, genesis of this talk, the uh, idea behind it, uh, comes from a new book that I just uh, put out. It's called uh, Wars of Ideas, uh, Theology, Interpretation, and Power in the Muslim World. It's a project that I've been working on for uh, a couple of years now, um, and it brings together some, some really top-notch scholars to look at the different soft power responses to uh, Islamist ideology that are now percolating throughout the, the Muslim world. So uh, with your indulgence, I want to talk for a few minutes about um, Sort of, you know, what the questions are that the book tries to answer, and maybe sort of uh, with uh, bring out some takeaways um, from this project. Um, so the genesis of this uh, project was essentially an attempt to answer two different ideas, uh, or uh, to respond to two different contentions. The first is that we, and in particular, uh, we, following the collapse of the Islamic State. Um, are not following the uh, jihadi, the Islamist milieu properly. Um, we've been so tunnel visioned, so focused on uh, defeating the ISIS caliphate in Iraq and Syria that we haven't really sort of followed the issue after, or haven't followed it properly after um, the, you know, we, we declared military victory uh, in the spring of 2019. Um, and the second uh, thing is that, uh, second, uh, issue is that we are not properly contextualizing the battlefield. Um, we are enormously effective in the kinetic arenas of counterterrorism. Um, the U.S. military certainly, uh, you know, has no uh, no peer or equal in terms of uh, the lethal capabilities that can bring to bear, uh, and that's why we've begun to address uh, the issue of counterterrorism largely through a kinetic lens. We, we tend to think uh, a great deal about uh, battlefields like Afghanistan and Syria and uh, rack and stack, whether or not we're doing well uh, in those places, uh, when in fact the, the real action, as it were, is uh, in the realm of ideas, uh, in the realm of uh, Islamist ideology, uh, and we're not paying sufficient attention to um, uh, how the jihadi message is promulgating, uh, you know, whether it's gaining resonance, whether it's declining in appeal. And those metrics are enormously important to understanding the future of the counterterrorism fight. So with your indulgence, I wanna just walk through for a few minutes, I wanna walk through each of these uh, points. Um, and the discussion really starts, I think, uh, in the context of uh, understanding the contemporary counterterrorism environment because uh, the previous administration was very focused, tunnel visioned, if you will, uh, on defeating the Islamic State physical presence uh, in Iraq and Syria, uh, constricting and then eliminating its territorial capability. And to its credit, it succeeded in doing that uh, with the assistance of the 82 nation 
uh, global coalition to defeat ISIS. Um, but uh, th this uh, sort of the environment that pertains afterwards sort of reminds me of this famous quote that former CIA director Jim Woolsey uh, told Congress uh, on, in his confirmation hearing in 1993. Uh, he was talking about the end of the Soviet Union and he talked about how uh, we have slain a dangerous dragon, but now we find ourselves in a garden with poisonous snakes. And I, I actually think that's a really good analogy to uh, sort of to think about or to keep in mind when we think about the sort of the current jihadi milieu, because what we're looking at is at least four distinct trends uh, that are going to define the counterterrorism fight over the next several years. The first is the persistence of the Islamic State. Uh, ISIS is down. Uh, but it's most definitely not out. And what we see is uh, a uh, the end of what officials have taken to calling the end of the caliphate era, the end of the uh, physical presence of the Islamic State. But what you're actually seeing is you're seeing a uh, sort of a, an adaptation and an evolution of the organization uh, built around three things. The first is continued resources. Uh, the Islamic State made the lion's share of its capital uh, when it was a state by acting like a state. Uh, it would tax the uh, captive populations under its control, uh, generating something on the order of $2 billion uh, annually in revenue, uh, making it the, the best funded threat group in world history. Um, so that source of revenue has, uh, has dissipated uh, as we've uh, progressively lopped off territory and eliminated territory that ISIS can control. But what we're seeing instead is that ISIS is still estimated to possess hundreds of millions of dollars and continues to generate a steady stream of revenue uh, via informal networks such as Hawala, via ongoing illicit activities such as antiquities trading and uh, illicit oil trading. And so the group has enough money, I, I would argue more than enough money to field operations on a smaller scale on an ongoing basis. The second uh, facet of the contemporary ISIS problem is continued manpower. Uh, in the middle of last year, in the middle of 2020, uh, the UN's counterterrorism counter chief, uh, Vladimir Voronkov, disclosed uh, the estimates that he and his team had at the time, which was that ISIS was believed to have 10,000 active fighters remaining in Iraq and Syria alone, and that there are thousands more attached to ISIS affiliates in places uh, like West Africa. So what you actually see is that while the global coalition has uh, significantly eroded the human capital uh, in the is, is Islamic State's caliphate in Iraq and Syria, you've actually seen a, a sort of a scattering of sorts. And that gets me to sort of uh, to the third point. Uh, the third trend line you're seeing is that the Islamic State is migrating to new theaters, is taking advantage of new sort of empty political spaces. Um, the, uh, we're seeing the Islamic State uh, crop, up, crop up in places like North Africa, increasingly migrating into uh, Central Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you're seeing a, a sort of a surge in ISIS-relating act activities in South Asia and Southeast Asia. And so what you've actually seen is this sort of the scattering of the Islamic State uh, as uh, its fighters out-migrate from Iraq and Syria where they've, they're put under pressure um, and uh, sort of you're seeing the Islamic State reposition itself globally. So that's the first trend uh, I, I think of note that we need to take into account when we think about counterterrorism. The second is 
the idea of a resurgence of what I would call local jihad. Um, so a little bit of history is in order here. In 2016, the United Nations estimated that nearly three dozen separate radical groups had made common cause with or had pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. All of these factions have been uh, deeply affected by the decline of ISIS. Uh, but almost without exception, all of them still exist and still operate. And that's because uh, all of these groups were independent entities first and still retain autonomous personnel and infrastructure and operational capabilities. And what you've actually seen is that these affiliates have become unmoored and they've sort of reverted to type and they've gone back to their original theaters of activity. And although that activity, a lot of it is still being carried out under the ISIS banner, it's more locally and regionally focused and conducted in the service of the objectives of those groups rather than that of the larger Islamic state. So don't let the hype fool you. This is much more of sort of, uh, has become much more of a local problem in places like the Lake Chad region, um, in places like Indonesia and the Philippines. Um, even though there are overtones of global jihad, this is actually uh, these groups acting locally. The third trend, uh, of note uh, of enormous strategic consequence, I would argue for um, the United States in the years ahead is that we're now witnessing a more receptive Arab polity to is exclusionary Islamist ideas. Islamist ideas are receiving a warmer reception than ever before among the publics of the Arab world. And there's a simple reason for this. Uh, it's that the Arab populations are tired. Um, I'll give you an example of what I mean. The Middle East, North Africa region cumulatively is overwhelmingly young in composition. Uh, among the 17 Arab countries of the, of the region or of the two regions, the median age currently stands at 26. Uh, so uh, if you sort of think back historically, what this means as a practical matter is that the majority of the region's population has lived all or most of its life in a state of conflict. And the resulting yearning for calm uh, that's now evident among broad swaths of the Arab world helps to explain why authoritarian models of government, including Islamist ones, uh, have such enduring appeal in the region. Now we're seeing heartening signs that this is not a monolith. Uh, the peace agreements uh, between, uh, the normalization agreements between Israel uh, and uh, the Arab states of the Persian Gulf are certainly a trend line in the opposite direction. But in many, many places still, you're seeing a tremendous amount of resonance uh, for Islamist ideas. And this affinity, this resonance, is being exploited by groups like Al-Qaeda, uh, for example, which has set up uh, fairly sustainable local governments uh, in parts of Yemen, for example. And then we get to sort of what I would argue is sort of the, the biggest ticket item, the most important one, which is that the jihadi message is still resilient. Um, today, despite the collapse of the ISIS territorial caliphate in Iraq and Syria, the dynamism of the group's message is still undiminished. There's really, uh, and I sort of, I, I proved this out through repeated conversations, both virtually and then in person um, with officials uh, throughout the, uh, the Middle East and North Africa over the last year and a half. There's really no substantive change to patterns of recruitment and radicalization and mobilization in the broader Muslim world. Um, and this is not just in the service of the Islamic State. Uh, other extremists have also learned lessons uh, lessons that the Islamic State provided by their path-breaking model of exploiting social media, exploiting broadcasting, adroit messaging, 
um, and they've upgraded their own messaging. And, and that's why you're seeing greater emphasis on soft power messaging from groups like Boko Haram in Nigeria, from groups like Jamaa Islamiyah in Southeast Asia. And the key equalizer here is technology. Uh, technology has what, what I would argue uh, lowered the, bar, uh, the barriers for entry. Um, for these organizations, uh, new media in the form of uh, social media, networking apps, online forums, has given the global Salafi Jihadi movement far greater reach and resonance than it would otherwise have. So that's the problem. And it begs the question, what's the solution? And here the United States finds itself at an inherent disadvantage because we don't have the standing religiously to weigh in authoritatively on Islamic thought and ideology. Um, but we also are not alone in this fight. And that's sort of the crux, I think, uh, of, of my argument in the book Wars of Ideas, which is that uh, what you have is a series of different models of comparatively tolerant Islam that exists throughout the Muslim world today, uh, which are all engaged in confronting the same problem set, this sort of this adapting counterterrorism environment uh, or uh, jihadist environment. Um, and uh, are responding to it in different ways. Um, some examples here are countries like Morocco, which has built a comprehensive national strategy uh, underpinned by the authority of its monarch to discredit I uh, extreme ideas in the media and in edu uh, and education, uh, in everything from uh, school curricula to uh, the scripting of television programs. Um, you have Indonesia, where moderate mass religious movements work in tandem with the state rather than in opposition to it and sort of create the, the proper nexus between nation state and religion. Uh, in Jordan, uh, where uh, the Hashemite kingdom blazed an early trail in crafting tolerant religious ideas into a cohesive message for the Muslim world. Um, in the Emirates, uh, which has used its resources and authority to spread a coexistence culture which uh, Abu Dhabi is now actively exporting abroad. Um, and there's lots of lessons that flow from this uh, about the need for a whole of government approach, uh, the need for uh, sort of to emphasize allies that balance state and religion uh, as an antidote to Islamism as a counter state movement, um, uh, and the need for uh, most of all for guiding principles. Uh, because what you have right now is a disaggregated community of Muslim nations that are all working towards the same purpose, that are all essentially confronting the same problem, but they're all doing it in different ways. And there is a, a job ahead for those of us uh, sort of who want to take it on uh, about uh, revolving around unifying them, bringing them together, trying to draw out common guiding principles that would uh, allow this, uh, this community to become more than the sum of its parts. So I'll stop there. All right, thank you so much. We have quite a few questions coming in. The first one from Yosef Tiles. Uh, we're talking about defeating the ideology uh, of Islamism. Uh, is there a difference between Islamists and Islamic and between Islam and Islamism in terms of counterterrorism? Sure. Well, this is a super controversial question. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I think it's, it's useful to talk about. Uh, I can only tell you sort of how, how I define it, how we at the American Foreign Policy Council define it. We tend to look at Islamism as the uh, active attempt to uh, impose uh, Sharia law, Islamic law, as a political exercise on a local, regional, or global level. And what that actually does for, uh, as a sort of as a clarifying concept is it shows you 
that there are different varieties, there are different groups, but they're sort of all working towards the same general purpose. So for instance, uh, the uh, Justice and Development Party of, uh, of Turkey is certainly very different than Al-Qaeda, but it has as its terminus, uh, ideological terminus, the imposition of Islamic law. It just has different tactics by which it wants to achieve this. It's participationist. It wants to work within the Turkish system and slowly change the Turkish system, whereas Al-Qaeda wants to overturn the table. But I think there's a continuity there, and it's sort of useful to think about it in the context of Islamism as a political exercise, right, which is distinct from Islamic, right, which has, you know, Islamic cultural connotations, sociological connotations, but what we're talking about here is a political project. Thank you so much for that differentiation. Uh, from Francois Lambon, uh, with the dismantling of the local ISIS caliphate, the spreading of Islamic, Islamist ideas seems to be in serious decline in the North America, US, and Canada. Uh, we see much less recruiting efforts, at least. Do you agree? No, I, I think that's right. And, and uh, there is certainly a sense uh, that uh, Islamist elements uh, in certain places, right? And I would sort of argue in the Western Hemisphere, uh, Western Hemisphere is one of them, uh, are on the back foot. But that doesn't mean they're on the back foot globally. And uh, one of the interesting things is, um, I always sort of refer to this colloquially as uh, what I would call the Willie Sutton rule. So for those of you in the audience that sort of that know this, Willie Sutton was a famous bank robber uh, in the early 20th century that uh, ran a string of robberies throughout uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania and, and you know, I, I think a couple other states. And when the FBI caught up with him, uh, they asked him a simple question, why do you rob banks? And his answer was, it's because it's where the money is. So. I think, uh, so I link, I tend to link uh, recruitment to demographics more than anything else. And that's why I tend to think that the next great frontier for this conversation, for this sort of counterterrorism fight is gonna be Africa because Africa has, is, uh, it continentally has the youngest population in the world. I think the average population in Africa is 19 years old um, and the population is set to double uh, by 2050. And so if you're a group like the Islamic State, uh, group like Al-Qaeda or even sort of smaller regional uh, actors, what you're looking at, if you want to expand your recruitment base, you're going to be looking at, you know, where the people are. Um, and that's going to be Africa, uh, to a lesser extent, Central Asia as well. But I, I think Africa is going to be very large sort of uh, in, our, uh, in our horizons uh, in the future. Thank you. This question's from Alex. What about Islamist ideology percolating leftist and woke arenas of society as well as amongst Muslim populations? Right. And, and by the way, I, I think this is precisely why um, harness, properly harnessing uh, these exemplars of sort of uh, moderate uh, Islam or sort of, you know, more moderate Islam in the Muslim world are so important because uh, in the absence of this clarification from the Muslim world themselves, you know, that groups like the Islamic State, groups like Al Qaeda, groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, they don't speak for us. Um, it has, you know, that narrative has the ability to be hijacked and weaponized by sort of other ideologies. And we're sort of seeing this sort of conflation uh, in the context of, for example, the recent uh, Israel Hamas war, where there, there's a lot more resonance, frankly, than there should be uh, to Hamas narratives. Uh, but if you look at what these countries, countries like Morocco and Tunisia and others are saying about this, uh, you know, the, they're actually saying a very different thing. Uh, the Emirates uh, sort of came out in front and said that, you know, unless uh, Hamas stopped this conflict, 
uh, immediately that, that they, they would ratchet back all, almost entirely their aid to the Palestinians. And I thought that was an important barometer of the fact that, you know, the narrative may be the narrative because uh, we're in America and all, everything is political currently. Um, but in reality, in the Muslim world, th these things are being perceived in a very different way they were before. And I would chalk that up to um, the fact that these countries are becoming more uh, more uh, confident and more sort of self-aware of what um, other countries are doing. Thank you. This probably should have been a follow-up to the previous question. Jacob Hirschman asks, how far south do you believe the Islamic State in Africa plans to go? Well, that's a really good question. And, and in the before time, before the pandemic, when we were like free to travel, um, I was already hearing from officials in places like Morocco that they were seeing this migration, the southward migration of the Islamic State. So the history here is, is important. Um, ISIS, long before the ISIS caliphate was under assault by the global coalition, was already talking to foreign fighters that hadn't mobilized yet as part of its recruitment efforts that they shouldn't travel to Iraq and Syria, they should actually travel to Libya. Uh, Libya would be sort of the fallback position, the important front. Um, and so you actually saw this very important secondary flow of foreign fighters uh, who wanted to join the Islamic State, but they were sort of taking a detour and they were going to, to Libya. And so that's why uh, as early as a couple of years ago, you were already hearing North African officials say, what we're actually worried about is we're worried about the southward migration, this migration from North Africa down to Sub-Saharan Africa, because that would allow these groups and these elements to link up with local jihads. For example, that of Boko Haram in Nigeria, uh, the instability around the Lake Chad Basin, uh, things like that. So my sense is that what you're actually looking at is, you know, uh, the the sort of uh, the jihadi current may never reach South Africa uh, in sort of in a meaningful fashion, but you're certainly going to see, I think, in the next couple of years, you're going to see much more of a presence in Central Africa. And in fact, you're already beginning to see it in this upsurge of Islamist activity that you're seeing in Mozambique, for example, which is in Central Africa, so. Thank you so much. Uh, from Peter Chu, the, the idea, ideology of Soviet communism was defeated under Putin, it argu arguably, sorry, uh, does still live on and continues to be a threat to the West because Putin wants to recreate a form of Soviet greatness. Is there some way in which Islamism similarly could be defeated yet metastasize and continue to be a threat? Well, I think so. Um, and, and certainly that, that was, you know, my chief complaint uh, for the Trump administration was not that they weren't serious about counterterrorism because they had clearly sort of allocated the proper resources to fighting the Islamic State. It was what came after. Um, and the question that the Trump administration didn't answer to my satisfaction during its time in office, and the question that the Biden administration hasn't taken up, is what happens next? Meaning, we understand, uh, we can all agree that the Islamic State is a scourge on humanity and it needs to be dismantled. These other groups are more controversial, more divisive. Are they our problem or are they somebody else's? And increasingly now, I'm sort of more and more pessimistic that we're going to default to the position that there's somebody else's problem because we have a lot of fish to fry. Um, you know, we are sort of uh, beginning to pivot uh, to take on great power competition with China. There's less and less bandwidth or interest in the Middle East and North Africa. And so my sense is that, uh, you know, that, that creates ample political space for these organizations to regroup, for the ideology to remain salient. And that's why those trend lines, the trend lines about increasing Arab identification, uh, increasing uh, ideological messaging from these groups, 
uh, are so important and so resilient because as we turn our attention away, these guys still have their eyes on the bolt. Thank you. From Carrie Car Hildebrand, uh, what, what is the extent of ties between Hamas and Hezbollah with Islamist State? So I, I think that's a great question. Um, there is a tremendous amount of bleed over. Um, and again, right, uh, sort of in my comments, uh, we have to understand the demographics of the Muslim world in which 85% uh, of the Muslim world are Sunni, 15% are Shiite. And so, you know, by in essence, right, the bulk of our counterterrorism fight um, tends to be focused on Sunni groups. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a role for, uh, for Shiite groups. Uh, Iran is, after all, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. And groups like Hezbollah, which are Shiite, benefit tremendously from Iran's largesse. But so do Sunni groups, because Iran is enormously pragmatic in terms of how it spreads its money around. And so uh, Hamas, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, other groups, uh, also benefit, uh, which are Sunni, also benefit from Iranian support. And that's why you see this sort of the, the blurring of the lines between these organizations. Um, it's, I think, comforting for a lot of analysts to talk about uh, a competitive environment between these groups, right? These groups never collaborate, these groups never cooperate. But the reality is actually very different. Uh, you know, you go back, you know, uh, quarter century and you'll find evidence that um, the uh, uh, in the 90s that Al-Qaeda um, received uh, elements of Al-Qaeda received training from uh, Hezbollah in bomb making, right? These are things that you can find sort of in the open source and affidavits and things like that. But it also uh, suggests that uh, these organizations may be ideological, but they're also very pragmatic. And so you're seeing a lot of connectivity between Iran and these groups, but also among these groups themselves. Thank you so much. From Richard Cronenfeld. How can we effectively counter Islamist ideology when it seems that nearly the entire world, even supposedly fact-based organizations, uh, spread the rumors that Israel is an apartheid state, is ethnically cleansing Palestinians and committing aggression? <laughs> uh, can't, sorry, I wear glasses. Um, even more crimes in the recent Gaza conflict. Can these two things be separated? So I, so I think they can be, and I actually think, right, so I, I think the, the problem set that we have with regard to um, the demonization of Israel, sort of the, the uh, lack of proper context in terms of the, the sort of the threats that Israel is facing and the problems that we face more broadly from extremist groups um, are separate, right? They're, they're interlinked, there are points of connectivity, but uh, I, I think, frankly, the sort of the, the biggest takeaway for me for doing this sort of these two years of research has been the degree to which seriousness, governmental seriousness is necessary, right? And, and, and you sort of see this in the countries that have done best in the Muslim world in countering um, uh, Islamist ideology and really putting Islamist organizations on the back foot, limiting the space for Islamist ideas to grow in their body politic. It's an effort that isn't just done by one department or one agency. It's an effort that's done by a whole of government where the government makes it a major national priority to shape the contours of discourse. And here we have a problem, right? We don't have standing in this discussion. And so by nature, the way we've responded to counterterrorism is a piecemeal endeavor. It's mostly military, uh, sort of, uh, as you know. Um, but in the Muslim world, what you see is uh, in places like Morocco, in places like Indonesia, what you have is a whole of government approach. And these are the countries that have been the most successful in limiting the empty political space that Islamists need in order to occupy. 
Thank you so much. From Gary Rappaport, uh, Hamas and to a large extent the PLO preach the Quranic mandate to not tolerate a state of non-believers like Israel in the Middle East. Their propaganda is being picked up and repeated in American politics uh, by people of Islamic origin. Examples. Uh, how do we educate the American electorate about what the intentions of Hamas and the PLO are and how can, how they are driven by Islamic ideal regarding even making peace with Israel? Right. Well, no, I, I think that's a crucial question. And it's, frankly, it's a question that the, the White House is going to be forced to grapple with because uh, the administration uh, is uh, interested in pivoting into a deeper discussion of Palestinian politics, but it's going to run aground on top of congressional initiatives, for example, the Taylor Force Act, uh, which make it difficult to uh, provide aid, to sort of to have interaction with groups that are designated as terrorist or, or even with the Palestinian Authority fully uh, while the Palestinian Authority is in, uh, continues to be engaged in things like pay to slay. Um, what I think is interesting and uh, you know, smarter minds than I are gonna have to come up with the answer to this question is to the extent to which the Palestinian narrative can be disaggregated from the Islamist one, right? Because they're not necessarily totally the same thing. And the more uh, we have a unified, you're right, America and its partners have a unified response to uh, Islamist ideas, the more we can shape the contours of that smaller Palestinian arena by demonstrating both to the Palestinian Authority and to Hamas, what type of discourse is acceptable, what type is not. Um, I think the two are connected. I don't think they're necessarily causing. Understood. And in our last minute here, can you just give us a brief takeaway of what lessons you think the, the U.S. or a reiteration of the lessons you think the U.S. should apply going forward? Yeah, no, I, I think the sort of to, to me, the, the, the key one is sustained focus. Um, we tend, uh, right, uh, our foreign policy is rife with examples of us achieving a strategic objective and then losing the peace, right? Walking away, turning our attention to other things. And that's what I fear is happening now in the counterterrorism field, where we're increasingly pivoting to great power competition as a nation uh, and paying less and less attention to counterterrorism. We're increasingly uh, not taking seriously the concern, the security concerns and the sort of the ideological concerns of our allies and partners in the Middle East and North Africa about what they're confronting regionally. And in uh, sort of in terms of what we've identified as our priorities for the Middle East, like for example, re-engagement with Iran, we're actually actively doing things that run counter to aiding them in this contest. And I, I think this contest is, right, as Jim Woolsey, who I referenced before, as he has said, this is the long war. It continues to be the long war and uh, continues to be the long war, whether or not we're paying attention or not. And so my, my hope here is that, you know, this is uh, sort of this book and, and sort of our larger projects have uh, been able to provide some sustained attention on this. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And for our viewers who came late, can you just tell us again the name of your book and sure. uh, where we can find I, it? I can show you. Uh, so <laughs> War, Wars of Idea, Wars of Ideas, uh, Theology, Interpretation and Power in the Muslim World. You can get on Amazon. I hope you do. Um, it's, uh, I, I can't take full credit for it. I, can, I only uh, conceived of the project, but there's some enormously talented scholars that write about everything from uh, the Central Asian model of balancing state and religion uh, all the way to the sort of post uh, Salafist trajectory of Saudi Arabia. Uh, enormous food for thought and uh, hopefully a worthwhile contribution to this uh, all important debate. Wonderful, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mr. Berman for speaking with us today. My pleasure, thank you.
Of course. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for an update from Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a great day.